Good morning. I'd like to share with you from the book of Numbers, and we are continuing our journey through the wilderness, and uh, Numbers 21 is the passage we'll look at. Numbers 21 is a lot further on, 40, about 40 years, almost 40 years, uh, after our last incident where we talked about Meribah, or, or, or um, the manna. And so we are in the second generation of the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, as they were going through the wilderness. Most of the first generation had died, and so many of them who are now the second generation. They're much younger, and they uh, who were born in the wilderness. And we'll read it from verse 4, okay? From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, but the people became impatient on the way. The people became impatient upon the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we detest the miserable food. They didn't like manna. They didn't like quail. Sounds very familiar, isn't it? The food sucks. And on this journey in the wilderness... They were really unhappy because in some ways the wilderness is the way in which God deals with them. And in some ways the wilderness conditions are a bit unusual, quite unusual. They are not normal and they are restrictive as well. But the wilderness is the way in which God gives us the knowledge of Him and brings us into the knowledge of His presence, His power and also of ourselves And so what you have is a situation in which the second generation of Israel were being faced with things that were surfacing out of their hearts. Things that were surfacing out of their own hearts. They they were beginning to see the, the disease in their own soul. They were beginning to see their true nature in that sense. And wilderness has that, the wilderness has that, um, effect upon us. Um, while I was, uh, in Malaysia, and uh, coming back and forth from Malaysia to America, America to Malaysia, I had got to know many people in America, uh, especially those who are full of students. And what, what had begun to happen uh, around the, the early 90s was that batches of American students and uh, young graduates uh, and uh, students of Fuller would come back with me to visit my church. Um, there was a tremendous interest in our church in Malaysia. And uh, in particular, uh, these young men and women who would come would come because they were interested to learn about spiritual dynamics, how to see the power of God at work. They were interested to see demons cast out, bodies healed, you know, gifts of the Spirit operating. Many of them came from evangelical and uh, non-charismatic, so to speak, um, uh, uh, backgrounds. And so, a lot of them came and many of them were transformed. They would come back and they would tell their friends about how they encountered uh, God's power. They encountered the demonic spirits and, and, and were involved in casting out demons. And one of the things that actually happened for many of them is that they experienced a new boldness in God, a new relationship with God. Many of them experienced a very deep work that God had done in their lives. Now, there was one guy who came along with uh, some other Americans to come to uh, Malaysia. What he didn't realize he, was that what happens a lot of times in these mission trips, so to speak, uh, is that you go through culture shock. You go through a sudden hump. and You go through certain, a certain situation if you're there long enough. I mean, I'm not, not talking about two-week trips. I'm not talking about three-week trips. I'm just talking about three-month long trips, Okay. It was, there's a certain part where you, ex, you, you encounter what seems like the wilderness, a stripping in your life. And I, by that time, was not in Malaysia. I was already uh, in here in BCF planting a church, but I had gone back to speak at a conference in Malaysia, and I met him, and, and I met him. And to my surprise, he was not a happy camper. He had hit the wall and he was really unhappy with a lot of things, a lot of things in, 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 in his training. He was so unhappy that he just felt that um, he would be 
uh, loath to actually continue, but he wanted to just come home. And I remember talking to him across with Cindy uh, across the table, and we were having lunch together. And he started complaining about everything. He just complained about the whole thing. There was so much restriction. He, he was so used to much more freedom, so much more um, ability to express himself. And now he was here in Malaysia, and he couldn't understand why all those other students and other young men and women had come out of Malaysia and, and been so transformed and so, so, so bold in their, in their faith. And he was feeling worse. And he just started complaining about it. And then finally, he made the ultimate complaint. The ultimate complaint. Something like the children of Israel. He said something like this. We detest this miserable food. And I remember he said it and he lowered his voice because he knew that in Malaysia, people value and revere their food. And he said, and the food is not that good. That was the ultimate complaint that he had made. And uh, in some ways, he was facing what the children of Israel face. In some ways, he was facing something that perhaps you and I are facing during this COVID-19 period, a kind of a wilderness in which that wilderness is marked by restriction, by perhaps stripping, by uncertainty. And here was the complaint of the children of Israel. Now, what the wilderness does is that it actually brings to the surface we saw this in Deuteronomy 8, what is in our heart. And the children began to see, the children of Israel began to see the sin that was in their heart, their intolerance of God, the intolerance of God's dealings. And so let's continue reading this. The people spoke against God, verse 5, and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? See, the lie that's resident in the heart, the lie that's in the heart that suspects at the end of the day, deep down in us, that God cannot be relied upon, that God may have diff- bad things in store for us, began to surface. And so these lies, these resident lies, Plato calls it the lie that, that lies at the bottom of the heart, uh, began to surface. That's what the wilderness does. And, so, and it says, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? These are resident Resident thoughts, the resident questions that are in our heart. They are, we are in some ways hardwired with these questions, these questions that only God can answer through experience. And, uh, and, and of course, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. What was happening is that they were actually detesting the food and the life that God was giving to them. They were rejecting the manna. And we've seen uh, in previous weeks that the manna that God was giving was a picture of the body and blood that Jesus was wanting us to give. That which Jesus said, if you do not eat of the flesh of the Son of God and and drink of His blood, you have no life in yourself. And what these uh, children of Israel, this second generation, were saying is like, I don't want it. I do not want this kind of life. I don't want your blood. I don't want your, your body. I don't want the food that God has for me. And this absolute rejection of God was arising out of, out of their hearts. And as that happened, and he said, we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents, serpents among people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. Let's, let's continue uh, reading this, part, this passage. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent. Make a poisonous serpent. And set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. And Moses made a serpent of bronze. Bronze is a picture of refining, yeah? Bronze is a picture of refining where uh, two metals are refined and combined together. And put it on a pole. And whenever, whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Okay. Whenever a serpent bit someone, so the serpents never went away. They, kept, they continued to be there. 
whenever the serpent bit them, someone, they would look upon the serpent of bronze and live. Mm. Let's have a look at this much uh, a little bit deeper. You can see that um, the serpents that were sent by God were really a consequence of the poison that was in the hearts of the children of Israel. They were they had poison in them, and this was reflected in some ways by the hurt, the serpents biting them. It's almost as if the, 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 the poison in our hearts comes back to bite us. It has consequences. And uh, one of the things that uh, we begin to see is that the children of Israel, as they began to encounter their own sin and the poison that is in them, the serpents, uh, that are a result of their, their own sin, and uh, began to experience uh, such a dealing of God. Many of them actually died. And as they prayed to God, God spoke to Moses and he says, make this bronze serpent. Make this bronze serpent. And when you make this bronze serpent, it has to be a serpent that's poisonous. I don't know what that means. I, what I think what it means is that Moses was supposed to replicate the species of poisonous serpent. I don't think it means that he had to put poison in the serpent. I think it meant, it meant that he had to make a serpent that was of that same species. And the interesting thing is that as he put it up on the pole, healing would come to them by them looking at, of all things, the very cause of pain, the very cause of their, 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 their death. They were supposed to look at not something that is pleasant, was pleasant. They were not supposed to look at sort of a kind of a, imagine a stream with water flowing through it. No, they were supposed to look at the serpent. Isn't that amazing? That actually, in order for them to be healed, they were supposed to look at the serpent. That seems a little curious, don't you think? That God would have a treatment for the children of Israel, for the, the state of their heart and the state of their, their health as a result of that, by them actually looking at the serpent. It's, it's, it's amazing. What he said was this, you shall look at, the, at it and live. I want to talk about that a little bit because of the fact that I feel that God wants to speak about this place in our heart that needs to be healed. And this place in our heart that needs to be healed can only be healed when we look at the serpent. Later on, Jesus, of course, we see in uh, uh, John chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, he says that as Moses lifted up the serpent from the earth, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And the word lifted up here in, 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 uh, in that understanding of Greek is actually crucified. Not exalted, but crucified. The, the, the Son of Man will be crucified and lifted up upon the earth, just as the serpent was there that all those who believe upon him will live. Isn't that amazing? And that's where it flows into John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whosoever believes in him, receives him, right, will, have, will not perish but have everlasting life. The issue that I want to talk about is the issue of guilt. The issue that the serpent seems to bring up in us the, 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 the counterintuitive cure that God has for us. That by only looking at the sin or the serpent, we will be healed. Very, very strange, don't you think? The strange thing is that by looking at the serpent, healing will actually take, take place. I feel that God has something to say, but I'd just like to pray with us for a little bit, well, um, one more time. And uh, I'm just going to ask God for revelation as we, as we pray this, because without revelation, um, all this is just head knowledge. Lord, we just ask you that you come. You will come and speak. Speak in this, po in this way that we will forever be set free from guilt, set free from everything that makes us have no confidence before you. In Jesus' name, Amen. The treatment of God 
for our guilt, our sin, our disease. Is Jesus being lifted up upon the cross just as the serpent was lifted up? And in doing so, just by looking at the serpent, by gazing at the serpent, by looking intently, the word ra'ah, to look, it's not just a casual look, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intent look, the serpent. Healing would take place. It's an amazing thing. Um, some of you may have read um, Adam um, Gopnik's book, uh, Paris to the Moon. Paris to the Moon, it was a New York Times bestseller. He was a New Yorker, uh, a writer for New Yorker. And he talks about the fact that he and his family had decided to move to Paris and to spend a few years in Paris, to have that adventure of Paris. It was almost like a tradition with all New Yorker, uh, uh, writers of the New Yorker, that they would spend a bit of time in Paris. And so he writes this book uh, to Paris, uh, Paris to the Moon, uh, and he writes about little things in Paris that were bespeaking bigger issues, philosophical issues. And he talks about the fact that one of the dysfunctionalities that he saw in Paris life was the fact that they have these voice machines, I think uh, answering machines, right? Voice, voicemail machines and fax machines that largely do not work. They just don't work. That's why you never see uh, voice machines here or fax machines made in, made in France, right? You don't, you don't actually see the American ones are much better. And he says what's interesting is this, during this time when he's, it's, it's, it's very frustrating for, for him because he's used to things that work, made in America, I guess. But when he was there, every time there was a glitch and, the, and messages don't come through and all that, there will be one button that will, there will be a light that will be labeled error distant. That means an error from far away. Not the error of the machine itself, not the error of the fax machine, but the, or, the, or the error of the voice, voice machine or the telephone voice machine, but the error of a distant place. And he says this is a picture of what happens in, 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 what has happened in France. And if you look at the politics of France, he, he would say that the politics follows this particular trait in which it's always distant. It's somewhere else. The problem is somewhere else rather than the problem with the machine itself. And he makes one whole, writes one whole chapter about this that is a really good picture of uh, the French, um, French political life. And today you see France is a huge mess. Um, Cindy and I uh, went to France and we were thinking of going to Paris because uh, we had gone there for our honeymoon. But everybody said, don't go to Paris. There are, so, there are so many yellow jackets. There is so much dis, disorder there. There is so much violence there. Go to Lyon. Don't go to Paris. Paris is in a terrible mess today. And France is, so, is, is too. But he would say that this, this has something very much to do with this. The error distant. This distant, distant error. And so I want to put it, use this as an illustration of the cure that God had for the children of Israel. And the cure for the children of Israel was that they had to look at a deeper, a deeper sense of non-confidence in God. What God was addressing through this particular story is that the children of Israel, at the base, at the deepest level of their life, had no standing or felt no standing with God. And there are many people today during COVID-19 in which our fears about God, our fears about our standing with God, our insecurity with God, our sense of unworthiness before God rises up and makes us afraid of uncertainty. We have no boldness before God. And I want to, 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 to address this because I feel that God has something really important for us. There are many Christians who have, have an, uh, uh, carry around an endemic guilt before God. 
And that guilt is something that causes them to have no confidence with him. It happens, it shows itself out when we are in, uh, impatient about things not turning out well. It happens when we are in uncertain places. It happens when we have crisis in our lives and we have to bring our prayer before God and we wonder about the potency of our prayer. Really, what we are wondering is about our standing with God. And what God wants to do is to actually deal with us and cure us and heal us in the innermost places where we are actually unsure about God or not bold before God. And this is something that uh, the serpent on the, on the pole is actually going to address for us. Okay? So this is something that I feel is, is really important. I want to address Christians who have been Christian for a while who somehow don't have confidence whenever they face crisis or when they have to pray or to minister. There isn't that faith or there's that boldness. I want to address people who before the Lord somehow feel unworthy, feel that the guilt just cannot be shaken off from the, their, their minds. I want to address people who feel that for some reason they don't feel strong in terms of confidence in God. This is something that actually arises especially during times of uh, wilderness, of, of uncertainty. COVID-19 is a great time in which you actually see this. And I want to put it to you that actually you can be comforted because God is bringing this up, not because He hates you, but because of the fact that He wants to heal you. And that, but the healing comes not by our own, uh, own methods, but by being able to see something that at first we may seem offended by. And so, what happened was this. The people came to Moses in verse 7. He said, they said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. And what they were basically saying is like, just take away the serpents. That's, some, that's something we always do. Take away the pain. Take away the reminder of our sin. Take away the reminder of our own unworthiness. Take away that thing that makes us not bold before God. The take, take away the thing that, that is in us that is perhaps defective or that is unclean or that is, is a sin that has happened to us in the past that makes us not sure about ourselves. And our society, unfortunately, tries to deal with our own lack of standing on lack of confidence before God by just, one, just causing us to avert our gaze from every serpent that we've seen. Now, you remember that Moses, before, uh, uh, before he led the children of Israel out, he was dealt with by God, and he, Moses said to him, said to God, how do I know that you have sent me? And, and, and God showed him the staff, and he says, throw it down, and the staff immediately turned into one of those serpents. Moses had to go through it before he would, would lead the children of Israel, and he said, throw it down. And, uh, and, and God said, look at the serpent. Look at the serpent that's coming out of your staff. Look at the serpent, the snake that's in every uh, instrument that you have, every ability that you have, everything that you have confidence in. And then when it was down on the ground, when it was thrown to the ground, God said, now pick it up. And Moses picked it up by the tail, which is, which is the worst place, the most dangerous place to pick up a serpent. But even in the most dangerous place, he was able to pick it up and it was turned into a staff that God would actually use. Now, this is something that the children of Israel are facing. We, today, deal with our own lack of standing or our lack of confidence before God by a certain way which I would say is dangerous. It's actually not the Lord's way. Because the Lord's way offends us. It says, look at the serpent. Look at the serpent. And we are saying, no, don't look at the serpent. Take the serpent away. Remove the serpents away from us. The, the, the children of Israel said, you know, pray for us and take away the serpents from us. God said, no. You have to face the serpent. You have to face the serpent. You cannot deal with your life just by dealing with the feelings of unworthiness. Because if you deal in the area of feelings, all you will be doing is dealing with things that make you feel guilty, make you feel bad about yourself, and those may help a little bit, but they don't deal with the fact that it's, you don't feel guilty or you don't feel uh, the lack of confidence with God because of things that have happened, but because of the fact that sin has caused the inside of your soul to be crippled inside, to be diseased. And what God wants to do is to not deal with the area of just feelings. 
Now, what happens for many of us is that we think that the lack of confidence before God is a psychological thing. It is something that can be traced back to things that have happened in our life or traumas that we've experienced. And I would say, yeah, that's true. But that's not the deepest This is not the root problem. What God wants to do is to deal with the root problem. The root problem is that there's a snake in there. The root problem is that there's a serpent in there. And that serpent needs to be gotten rid of. And if you do not see that 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 serpent has not been gotten rid of, you will always think that the serpent is there, lurking somewhere in there. And whenever you, 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 you face a difficult situation or you need to minister, you have no confidence with God. Because the serpent is still there, you can still hear this. Even as you're praising God, you're still hearing the hissing of the serpent somewhere around, around there. And God said to the children of Israel, no, you've got to look at the serpent first. You've got to look at the serpent first. We deal with it by dealing in the area of feelings. We, want, we try to avoid, we, we censor our words, we censor our, our, the things that we give attention to, so that our feelings will be dealt with. I was shocked uh, during... Uh, when uh, our children were having, were, were in, in, I think, junior high school or something, or, or elementary school, and they had a sex ed um, a class. And everything about the teaching about AIDS was not about how dangerous AIDS was, about how to prevent AIDS, but by how to deal with the bad feelings that come to us when we have AIDS. Now, I believe there is some validity to that, but the biggest serpent is... How do we prevent AIDS? And no, nothing was, was mentioned about that because there's, there's ways in which they're dealing on the level of feelings because the worst offense is that it makes us feel bad. So that's, that, that's a way of, of, of dealing with it that causes us to have a false boldness, a false confidence in God by manipulating feelings. The other thing that causes us to, to, to that, that, that we can do to actually try to avert our gaze from our own, um, uh, our own inadequacy is to actually start thinking about righteous things that we've done. So sometimes when you think in terms of our prayer to be able to approach the presence of God, we sometimes feel better when we can think about the fact that we've done some good things. I, I didn't shout at my children today or I had an, 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 a kind of a warmer, quiet time today, so because of that, I feel that um, I should be okay. So that your sense of standing is based upon what you've done that's better. The only problem with that is that it's never going to be good enough. Uh, some of us think of it, of our whole problem with God, as a psychological problem. Not just feelings, not just an issue of uh, relative righteousness, but in terms of our own problems as psychological, this mainly psychological, and trying to deal with things that happened in the past and trying, trying to work on things that uh, have gone wrong in our lives. And what it does is that it prevents us from uh, experiencing real deliverance. Some of us, we try to deal with it in a false boldness by putting the blame on someone else by considering yourself the oppressed, that someone oppressed you. And as a result of that, you are more the victim and less, less uh, responsible for that deep-seated lack of confidence. Now, and as, as a result of that, what we have is a culture, even in the Christian culture, that avoids anything that is unpleasant. It avoids anything that is the root of our real problems. And what God was not wanting to do is to He's not wanting to just make us feel better about ourselves on the level of feelings or our own self-esteem or our sense of our own uh, worthiness uh, before God. Because if he, those things are not dealt with, all it requires is a situation in which you are impatient, you are, you are uncertain about what's the future, your, your, your life is, is threatened, or you are, something is called out from you, is required of you that you don't have. And the, confi- the lack of confidence just begins to, to erupt all over the place because of the fact that underneath all these things, there is a deeper-seated sense of, may I call it, unrighteousness. But here's the cure. The cure is not that God was saying to them, I want you to have a morbid um, obsession with your sin. I want you to know 
that just as Moses raised the serpent up on the pole, so was the Son of Man, Jesus, raised up from the, on, the, on the cross, so that in His raising up on the cross, you will see that He was made sin for you. That's why it's a bronze serpent. It goes through the refining. It goes through the fire. So much so that my sin and Christ's righteousness, the two alloys, the, the alloy of two things, is brought together. So that instead of thinking of the, of the, of the cross uh, or the serpent as a, a, an obsession with my own sin, I'm looking at Christ and I see He who has made sin for us so that we would be the righteousness of Christ. As we look at the serpent, we are full in the face looking at our serious problem, the problem of sin. The problem is not an error distort somewhere else, someone who's oppressing you. It is not just society. It's not just some, some, something that has happened in, 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 in the past. The problem is this, I am full of sin. And God has to give each one of us a sense of our own unworthiness, our own offense to God. But as we look at it on the cross and we gaze upon it, what's the word ra'ah means gaze, behold intently the serpent, you are supposed to see Jesus on the cross. Because when Jesus went, went on the cross, he became that unrighteousness. And you're supposed to see that unrighteousness in the light of Jesus on the cross. That every unrighteousness has been laid upon him, that he who was slain before the foundation of the earth, who spilled and sprinkled his blood, was a worthy sacrifice on your, on your behalf. So much so that only a God could actually swallow up my sin, swallow up my taint, my, 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 my unrighteousness, swallow up the guilt that's in me, swallow up the sense of, 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 of my own unworthiness, and, and swallow up so, so that he becomes the all that's left on the pole. And when God was saying to the children of Israel, you just look, you don't do anything, you don't put anything on, you don't stand on your head, you don't make any extra sacrifices, but you just gaze at the, at the, at the serpent on the pole. You're, what he was saying is this, you are supposed to look straight in the fact that you have put Jesus on the cross. If you avert your eyes from that and say, well, it was because of something else, then you reduce what Jesus has done on the cross. You minimize the need for a savior. And if you minimize the need for a savior in any way, then you, you despise what Christ has done. When Christ went to the cross, he carried all of our sins, not as a collective abstract kind of thing, but he carried upon himself every sin, every person's every sin. So much so that the sins of one person were double when two people Two people's sins were carried upon himself on the cross. It was double pain. Now you infinitely multiply that and you find that Jesus carried every single one. Not an abstraction. Not a, a, a whole basket of things that, you know, just because he died on the cross, he had a, uh, 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 he had a, a sort of a, a, a finite amount of, of pain, a finite amount of darkness upon him. No, he carried upon, every, upon himself every one of my sins and your sins upon himself. So that when I look at the serpent on the cross, I see two things. I see my own sin. If I don't see my own sin, I will not experience what it is for Christ to assume upon himself my sin. I would just think that, well, there's, there's, a, there's sins, you know. I mean, I mean, let's not talk about it. You know, you just died for me and that's okay. We, we, we won't talk about it. No, in order for me to be healed, I have to know that that thing, that unworthiness, that sense of darkness and blackness and unacceptability in me, in me was laid upon Jesus on the cross. Do you have those? Some of you may feel, I have a sin that I committed that I can never forget. And because of that, I tried my best to make up for it. But I can't shake that. Every one of us has a few places in our lives that we are conscious of. Those few places in which we did something so terrible that we cannot even talk about it. So terrible 
that we cannot even think about it because it causes so much pain. That's, each one of us has this part in us that is an outworking of our sin nature, the disease nature. That has, and these things have taken place. They stick in our memory. And even on an unconscious level, they stay with us and tell us that we are not worthy. The only way in which you can be healed is not to say, well, let's not think about it. It's not to say like every good evangelical, well, Jesus has washed away all my sins in in the abstract, and so I don't have to worry about it. No, you want to take that to him. Every bite of the serpent, bring it to him. And the serpent may bite you again, and you bring it to him. And you only look. You don't do anything to justify yourself. You don't do anything to heal yourself or to... Or to, or to cauterize your wound, but you just look to him and you gaze at him. And what, what the Lord was saying, you're going to ra- ah, you're going to intently look at me because there's nothing you can do to justify yourself. Nothing. Nothing you can do to make up for it. Nothing you can do to, 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 to add a good point or a good, uh, good, uh, good per- personal, per- personality trait to it. Nothing you can do. You can only sit and gaze at him until the healing takes place. That happened to me. I grew up with a terrible sense of unworthiness. And that would be a... a, (laughs) The word unworthy would be a a euphemism. A a deep sense of unacceptability. This deep sense of unacceptability I knew was not just because of the fact that I had done unacceptable things, but because of the fact that there was something that was in me that caused me to never feel confident with God. Every time I prayed to God, I would never have be able to have faith, faith because of the fact that my conscience was an evil conscience. My conscience was an evil conscience. And it was in this place that I, for the first time after I graduated, began to realize that my righteousness does not consist in anything I could do to change myself or to make myself more feel more spiritual. It does not lie in the fact that I felt more spiritual or that I had made up for it. It could not even be assuaged by the fact that somehow as a good evangelical who had been to Sunday school, I knew that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he cleansed me from all my sins in the abstract. I needed to know that in the very essential concrete existence of me that he carried that spot. He carried that black ball of unacceptability of evil that was in me. And that's what the cross is about. That when, when, when Christ went to the cross, he sprinkled his blood, he shed his blood and took upon himself my unrighteousness. Oh, that's an amazing thing. So that you can never come to the Lord with anything other than the blood of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus was given to me and my sin was given to Him. Isn't that amazing? We can come lowly. Uh, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll read it from verse 19 to 22. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. That means his flesh, just as the curtain was torn apart, his flesh was torn apart on behalf of me. My sin tore his flesh apart. And since we have a great high priest great priest over the house of God, let us approach with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I can only come to him through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus. Now I understand that for us in our modern day and age, the, any talk about blood seems barbaric. Seems um, primitive. And I have to say this, that when, when, when the Bible speaks of a blood, it is, but the Bible does not have a, an obsession or curiosity in blood. 
Scripture tells us the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. When we come to to God through the blood, what what we are saying is this, it is only Christ's blood that was shed for us that gives us any standing to be able to come before God. My standing is not in the fact that I had a great quiet time, or my standing is not in the fact that I made a stand for God before, or that I paid my tithes and I backpaid all my tithes. No, it doesn't come because of that. It comes because of the fact that when Christ died on the cross, He shed His blood on my behalf, so much so that His life was put in front of my life, so that the devil could tear His life apart on behalf of me. On behalf of me. So that when God accepts the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, He accepts the blood because only His blood is satisfactory to God. Because God is so holy. Now what happens is this, we don't realize sometimes that the God accepts the blood of Jesus because God loves Jesus. That Jesus' sacrifice was so infinitely valuable to God because he, had, he who had no sin took upon himself all my sin, so much so that God, when he looks at Jesus' blood, he said, that's so precious to me. That's why we call the blood precious. It's precious because precious actually describes how God feels towards Jesus. That God's heart was broken when Jesus' blood was shed. When Jesus' blood was shed, the one who mourned most was not Mary, not John, not the disciples, not me, but, but that God the Father. So that when Jesus shed His blood for us, God's love for, for Jesus was so great. And in that, his love for us is so great that the blood of Jesus was precious, is enough. Anything that the blood of Jesus said would be enough for the Father. The blood of Jesus was not just his blood of, of, of corpuscles and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and water and uh, red blood cells and white blood cells. That's not, that, that's not what God was concerned about. It was his life. So when Jesus poured out his blood, it's just a way of saying, he poured out his life for me. And so, because of that, when I look to Jesus, I recognize that I'm looking to someone who's very precious. Very, very precious. God the Father loved Jesus so much that when Jesus' blood was shed, on account of His love for Jesus, not because of the fact that there's some legality in blood or because of the fact that the blood is a talisman or because of the blood was a symbol of something or because it was magical, but on account of his infinite love for his son and how that infinite love for his son and the infinite of the, of his son, love of his son for us is tr- one thing. It poured out for us so much so that God listens to the blood of Jesus because he loves us. Because he loves Jesus. That's an amazing thing. That so, that so that when the children of Israel were given a type of that, and they were supposed to look at the, at the cross, they're not supposed to get all obsessed by, the, by sin or, or, or by, by, by pain. They were supposed to see that that was what Jesus was carrying upon them in type. And the way in which I can have confidence before God is not to look at the fact that I'm not really guilty, not to try to, to, to assuage my feelings, but because of the fact that the blood is currency enough, that through the blood and only by the blood can I approach with confidence God in my prayers. Not because I feel spiritual, not because of the fact that I did a good job um, spiritually yesterday, but because of the fact that in my own sinfulness, in my own diseased self, when God looks at me, He looks at the blood of Jesus and I can come without any sense of feeling uh, worthy in of myself, but because of the worthiness of Christ. The life is in the blood and Jesus' blood is precious to God. And I wonder whether there are some of us who are here to, uh, who, are, who are saying, I never have this. I never have this confidence. I never have this confidence. I don't have the confidence that a child has who is completely accepted by her parents or his parents. I don't have that. 
Perhaps it's because we have spent a lifetime trying to either assuage our feelings or to justify ourselves. We avert our gaze from the serpent. We avert our gaze from anything that will make us feel bad about ourselves. But you see, you don't. When you look at the serpent, you see nothing good in yourself but everything good about Christ. It was in this place that Christ was lifted up above, the, above the, the, the earth. And he says that when the Son of Man is lifted up, like Moses lifted up the serpent, and the word lifted up really meant crucified in those days. It was a euphemism for criticism. Anyone who believes in me will have life eternal. That means the life of God. It is in this place where when we are wanting to pray for people, when we are wanting to be used by God, when we are wanting God to cast out demons, when we are wanting to see God stand for us against every kind of evil, that we are, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in the fact that quite apart from my goodness or badness, there is the blood. And that's the only currency that God has. You are accepted in the Beloved because God loved Jesus and He loved you and me. It's on the basis of, this, basis of this currency of God's love that we stand behind the blood. Every day we go out and we face difficulties and we pray. We pray with confidence, not in ourselves, not even in confidence in our faith, not in the confidence in our own righteousness, but in a confidence on something quite apart from me. It's the blood. Whether I feel like it or not, it stands true. And that's why when we cast out demons, and, I, and Cindy and I, we, we experienced some of that in, in Malaysia when we were casting out demons. There was this particular woman, and she was wanting to scratch out the eyes of those who were praying for her. And she, was, she had tremendous strength in there. And all we needed to do was to say, the blood of Jesus sprinkle over, over you. Immediately she just fell back and uh, the power of God was in the blood. Why? Because God loves the life of Jesus. The life of, is in the blood. He loves Jesus. He loves you. And that love is given over to you and me because of the, blood, because of the fact that the blood stands between you and your condemnation. Stands between you and the devil. It stands between you and every circumstance of, 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 uh, of uncertainty, even now. Let us pray. You don't have to look for sins in your own life. The Holy Spirit is here to convict and to release you and me from everything that is in me in you that makes me feel makes you feel inferior unacceptable there are people who are here who God wants to heal And he's telling you, bring that particular thing you did, that betrayal perhaps, that low-down thing you did, that thing that was done to you that made you feel so abused that you were never clean again, that history that you've had that makes you feel that you've lost your chance and God's just going to give you a consolation prize. God saying, no, I have made you clean by the blood. You never have to depend upon your righteousness. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. We're going to have a soaking time soon. And when you come into that time, I want to invite you to transact with God. Not just accept the principle but to transact with God. Give Him particular things as He reminds you. 
You don't have to go digging for it. Amen. This morning, I had a picture of um, a reminder of Adam and Eve when they did betray God who'd given them everything and they fell in line with a lie. Um, I just had a picture of um, some of us, maybe right even right now, we're tempted to hide and to cover ourselves. And I just sense that some of us are hiding behind ministry, hiding behind cars, hiding behind houses, hiding behind careers. And God is calling us out and saying, no, that will not hide any shame. It will not hide. And so, Lord, we do turn our eyes to you instead. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We can come out can come out from hiding in the bushes right now and find that as we look at Jesus, we see it was very painful for you, and yet we receive your forgiveness right now. We receive forgiveness is just flowing right now. Forgiveness is flowing. Ministry is turning not into something to hide behind, but in something that comes out from having been forgiven. Cars are becoming gifts from God, not things to pull around ourselves when we don't feel good about ourselves. So Lord, we ask right now you'd minister your forgiveness as we look directly at what we did to you on the cross. We thank you. You take our shame away. We thank you. You were pulled into that black hole and you turned it, God, into great light. Amen. Amen, Lord. So I just want to invite you to just go ahead and just as God brings anything, any root, sin, any root thing that happened in your life, I just sense that there are people who just felt made unclean. You became, you, there's something happened and it made you feel unclean for the rest of your life. Bring it before the Lord. Because when Jesus shed his blood, it covered all that. He carried upon himself everything that makes us feel unacceptable. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that you died and poured out a river of your blood, your life for us that's infinite, sufficient for every single sin that we have committed, past, present, future. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great high priest who shed his own blood for us eternally. We thank you, Lord, that we can approach you by your blood and not by anything else that we did good. Commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.